Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Lane Kawaoka of simplepassivecashflow.com. Before we dive in, I want to ask you a real quick favor. Would you mind please taking an extra 30 seconds and heading over to iTunes to rate this podcast with five stars? Thank you so much for taking the time to do that. It means a lot. All right, let's dive in. Lane owns 4,200 plus rental units and is the leader of the Hui Deal Pipeline Club, which has acquired over $350 million of real estate by syndicating over $40 million of private equity since 2016. Lane uses his engineering degree to reverse engineer the wealth building strategies that the rich use in the top 50 investing podcast, simplepassivecashflow.com. Lane, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Andy. Aloha, everybody. Aloha, love it. Uh, Lane, would you mind starting out by telling us your story and how you came to uh, start investing passively in manufactured housing. Yeah, so I um, kind of grew up on this linear path. My parents taught me to study hard, go to school, um, eventually became an engineer, and started to work at that job. And again, follow this linear path of buy a house to live in, invest your money in this 401k system. So I bought that house to live in shortly after college. And because I was never home, I was working on the road all the time. Um, I decided to rent it out. This was back in 2009. Uh, the rents were 2,200 bucks a month in Seattle and the, and the mortgage was 1,600. And to a young 20-something-year-old kid, that was a lot of beer money back <laughs> then. And I was like, shoot, if I just did this a bunch more times, I'll be able to escape the rat race, fire my boss. So that was kind of where things all started. Wow, that's awesome. And then, so after your first rental, you know, did you add on more single-family rentals, or you know, how did you how did you get into multifamily and and other asset classes? Yeah, so then I kind of got keen to the fact that sophisticated investors invest for cash flow, right? Not not necessary appreciation, which I consider gambling these days. So I started to invest in these more tertiary markets, secondary markets. Uh, bought some rentals in Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis, Pennsylvania, remotely. And then I got up in 2015, I had a portfolio of 11 rentals, which was cool, but you know, it's just not scalable, right? Um, a lot of more accredited investors will kind of say that there's sort of a wall. And with 11 rentals, I maybe had an eviction or two every year, some kind of big issue that happened every, um, every quarter, which is no problem because we have property management to kind of take care of all that nonsense. But you know, for 11 rentals, it's just $3,000 of passive cash flow a month. And that's nowhere near what a family needs, in my opinion. So you're going to need like 30 houses. So multiply all those that exception rate by three. And you quickly realize that single family home rentals or just all direct investment rentals on your own, it's just not scalable. So this is where I kind of started to move more towards the credit investor mindset of investing in private placements and syndications. And I luckily stumbled upon some groups with other high-paid doctors, lawyers, engineers. And this is, I found my tribe. Um, people who were kind of, they own, used to own rentals. 
they said the hell with that. And they're kind of moving towards this um, path of being an LP in larger deals. And that's kind of where I kind of transitioned to being in these syndicated deals. Very cool. So what asset classes do you invest in now, you know, outside of multifamily? Yeah, I would say mainly multifamily because that's, I think a lot of people move to multifamily because they used to own rental properties, right? And there's pretty much direct correlation between single family homes and multifamily. There's some differences, of course, but like it's, everybody's kind of lived in apartments at one time. You kind of understand it. And it's a very, it's very similar business plan. Um, But, you know, just look what happened, right? Like this pandemic. I mean, you never know what's going to happen. And I think a lot of us will still agree that the thesis of, you know, people moving down from the luxury stuff, having to go to more of a class B or class C type of housing, that that didn't really happen in this pandemic, right? But in this pandemic, the A-class people, they're just totally fine, right? Yeah, yeah they had to get Grubhub more often. <laughs> but a lot, a lot of the white-collar professionals... Were pretty unaffected one bit a lot of the lower end people were impacted in this type of stuff but still normally you would think in a recession the a's move to the b's the b's move to the c's and i think that's where like mobile home parks really come into play and you know like not making any more of them they're kind of an endangered species so i mean i i have a part of my portfolio set aside to mobile home park investing in addition to some other asset classes that kind of cater towards workforce housing, right? The average American is kind of the thesis. Yeah, I love that. You know, when it comes to mobile home parks specifically, what have you found to be the most important things that, you know, passive investors or LPs need to look out for? So I operate apartment buildings and I understand that. I know how to underwrite that, but I'll be honest, I don't really know how to do it for mobile home parks. I can jam it into my multifamily analyzer, but I don't I don't definitely don't know as much as you do, right? Like I don't know all the little nuances that I do like like apartments, right? Like we know mm-hmm. how the expenses work for landscaping, this, that, that expense. But I don't know that for mobile home parks. So I recognize that I am going outside my area of expertise. So my due diligence is more heavily relying on the operator, the operator's track record. Um, I'm relying on my network, right? Who in my network has invested with Andy in the past? Um, or maybe just do a test investment with somebody. And then if they, if they meet my expectations in terms of communication, and more importantly, are they giving me the results I want, the money in my bank account? invest more in the future um, yeah unfortunately there's no website for this stuff if there was it'd be heavily skewed and corrupt right like a lot of this is private placements like this is the country club you got to build your own network or take your own chances and kind of put in test investments definitely so yeah i, I guess the follow-up question would be you know how do you vet operators uh, before you invest with them yeah, so on the, on the apartment side, my process there is like, because I can't underwrite deals, take the profit and loss statement, take the, you know, do my own rent comps, t- take the rent rolls, put it into my analyzer and kind of spot check what the operator is doing in terms of assumptions. At that point, then I'm going to waste my time and talk to the operator, right? If the person is just 
you know, they're just being totally uh, irresponsible in terms of underwriting. You know, I don't like what reversion cap rates they're using. I don't like what full occupancy or rent escalators they're using. I just won't talk to the guy, right? Now, maybe if my network has invested with them in the past and has good experience, I, I might find an exception for that. But like I said, in mobile home park land, I don't know. <laughs> so I'm going to... I mean, I, I, I can look at a pitch deck and kind of spot check certain assumptions that are being made, such as rent increases per year, what is occupancy. And I have to kind of learn to calibrate. As I understand, like full occupancy for mobile home parks is not the same full occupancy in apartments, right? Like I would say in apartments, full occupancy is maybe 92%, 94% on a good day. But, I mean, what would you say for occupancy in mobile home parks? Like a little less, right? Like you, they tend to run with a little bit higher vacancy, or maybe not in your parks. But it really, it really depends on the market and on the the location. You know, we have some that have been occupied 100% for three years, and then we have some that are you know closer to, to 92 to 95%. And you know, a 40 lot park that has one tenant turnover is going to have a higher vacancy versus a a hundred lot park that has one unit turnover. So it, it really varies per park. Right, right. So those are the kind of things I'm kind of just spot checking. And you know, at least I can with Andy, I can have like the conversation with you. Like for example, on apartments, we usually assume that 3% of, even if we do have full occupancy, we're going to have 3% of the tenants not pay, right? Deadbeats. Um, is that, what's what's that number for mobile home park? What's kind of the- 5%. Five percent. Yeah. So the little bit more, a little, little bit more delinquent than your average apartment dweller. Then. Yeah, I, I would say you know again market specific, but uh, but yeah, you know through through COVID and everything, ninety five percent was our was our number. Um, yeah, maybe you could share also some some of the benefits uh, you know to LPs from a tax standpoint and how maybe your investments in mobile home parks compare with your investments in multifamily? Yeah. I mean, I, from terms of like, you know, I think both asset classes, you know, most operators will do a cost segregation to extract all the books depreciation, which currently it, a lot of this goes away or starts to titrate down in the year 2020 to 2024, 2025, I believe. But I mean, you know, instead of depreciating an asset over 27 years, like a single family home, with a bonus depreciation, with cost segregation, you're able to write off a lot of times a third of the building value in the first year. Um, so whether it's an apartment complex or a mobile home park or industrial project, there should be that heavy first year loss, which now that arms the passive investor with passive activity losses, which offset passive income. If somebody, and this is where we kind of get into the, the kind of the higher level wealth building strategies. Some some of my clients are doctors that make over $300,000, $500,000 a year. Now they try and implement real estate professional status and taxes. So they're able to use these built up passive activity losses to offset ordinary income. And this is where you're able to you know, net huge at the end of the year with that. Oh, yeah, tremendously. So... Uh, maybe you could dig in a little bit, like, like how they would do that, how they would achieve that. Uh, I know that some uh, investors like have a spouse that that would be the real estate professional. Uh, do you have another strategy that may work? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, 
of course, I'm not a lawyer, tax lawyer or a CPA, right? but I sure. tend to do know this more than most CPAs out there because after all, they have jobs and there's a reason why they have a job and they haven't figured this stuff out. Right? <laughs> but I'm just telling you what a lot of my folks will do, right? Like, I mean, you if you want this, if you're under $300,000 of AGI adjusted gross income, it probably doesn't really, it won't impact you very much. You're not paying too much taxes as it is, right? We're kind of talking to the high income earners of over $330,000 AGI. And the reason why I picked that number out of the sky is if you go look at your tax brackets for this year, that's where you really jump up from 24 to 32%. So this is kind of a moving target. Somebody's listening to this podcast later. Uh, but you know, if you're above that, it may really, I, in my opinion, it really makes sense to take a look at your family structure, right? Like, can one of your, you know, the, the couple, one of the people like you know, go to part-time employment or quit their day job? Um, a lot of times, this is an amazing thing. Like uh, one of their spouses doesn't make as much money and they may not like their job. So they can just quit, become real estate professional status. We'll talk a little bit about that. But now they can stay at home with the kids, right? That's what this is all about, right? Time, freedom, and doing what you want. And at the end of the day, they, the household nets more money because they're able to use these passive activity losses to offset ordinary income. Isn't that such such a, a crazy uh, you know thought that you you work less and make more? Yeah, I, why doesn't everybody do it, right? <laughs> well, I know why people, they don't want people to do it because if everybody did this, if everybody bought a handful of rental properties, who would build the bridges? Who would get your coffee, right? Like society would crumble, right? Um, but it's important. It's, there's, a, there's a little bit of ramp up to learn this stuff and this stuff changes over time, right? These best, these best practices change. And a lot of the time, it's your job, Mr. Passive Investor, to arm yourself and get educated so you can have an informed conversation with your CPA who's likely wants to do things the, you know, the more conservative way, which may not be in your best interest, but definitely gets your tax return in and out of their drawer quicker. Definitely. Uh, Lane, maybe you could share a little bit about your portfolio allocation and you know cash flow and best practices yeah so i mean i a lot of people ask me that question um i'm heavily in apartments because that's what i operate but you know if i was a passive investor not an operator i i like to spread it around a lot um i don't really have a great percent allocation between like self-storage mobile home parks um, apartments but you know, I mean, kind of go, I, I, I would say kind of spread it around in the beginning very slowly and see it performs and start to invest with the good operators that are giving you the best performance and start to, you know, you start to slowly move your money from your traditional um, paper assets, your mutual funds, all that type of garbage and more into the alternative investing world. But the key is to kind of do it slowly, right? As you're kind of testing out the waters. Um, in terms of, Another way I look at my portfolio is like on one side, I'll look at like A class versus C class. I kind of still advocate for a little bit of a blend between that, not just staying in you know the B plus land or B, B class area. I still think that there is some benefit to being diversified. Like I said, 
in a pandemic, the eight classes do fine. But traditionally, in recessions, the eight class get hammered. And then they, um, I've been trying to get away from class C deals these days because of worse collections. But that's just mostly me as an operator being selfish, right? But as an LP, I don't care because that mobile home park is Andy's problem, right? Or that apartment <laughs> is the other operator's problem. You as an LP, it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> In fact, you should probably want to go into the most hairiest deals for the most returns, even though it's the most headache for your operator. I mean, that's what they're getting paid for, right? <laughs> a lot like that. Uh, another way I look at it um, is heavy value add versus cash flow. Right, that's kind of another spectrum. Uh, in the beginning, when I started off in this passive investing world, I did a lot more cash flow based stuff because I still need to put food on the table, and is technically more of the conservative way of investing. But as my net worth has grown and I have enough food on the table, I mean, let it ride, right? Like you know, you don't make money unless you take on some risks. So I've been kind of going more towards heavier, medium to heavy value adds maybe some developments. Um, and that's that's how, you know, second generation wealth families invest, right? I know this doesn't apply to you and me, right? I mean, like we weren't born with this money, but I'm sure you and I have some rich friends and it, they invest very differently, right? They just, they go up there and they try and hit home runs every time because if they totally strike out, well, they're still rich, right? But <laughs> the poor working stiff out there um, trying to get your net worth you know, million to $3 million can't really sustain that strikeout, right? So you still have to kind of hold on to the side of the pool as you're investing in more cash-based deals. Definitely. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, what do you think about the current state of the economy, Lane? And, you know, with the new administration, you know, do you, uh, you know, tell us the future? I don't care about the future. Um, I think Biden provides some stability. Um, some people would think that, uh, you know, Republicans are a little bit more pro-economy, but that's has not, you know, if you look at the stock market, there's no correlated one way or the other. But what I am excited by is the Democrats surely like to spend a lot of money. And I don't, at the end of the day, my assumption is that money comes back to helping our regular people, which ultimately passes through them to us, the investors. Heads I win, tails I win. That's yeah, I people say. with the assets, right? You know, it, right. it, it flows flows back. Um, so yeah, I agree with you there. Um, okay, so you know, one thing we talked about before we started recording was the top questions that investors ask me before investing in a in a deal, and I, I thought that was a really good question. So I have I have a couple here that I've. I've written down. Uh, one of them that investors ask me is, when does the when does the cash flow start? You know, and and as you mentioned, based on a diversified approach, you know, some deals start sooner than others. Uh, you know, some that are more stabilized, maybe seventy five percent occupancy. Uh, you know, we're able to pay out. You know, starting at month six, uh, but others that are you know fifty percent vacant, where we're doing a major infill project. It takes it takes quite a bit longer, so it just depends on the deal setup and you know uh, how the project you know progresses. Um, another question I get is like, what's the worst case scenario? You know, have you been asked this question, Lane? And you know, maybe about some of your uh, multifamily properties. 
what do you what do you say when when you're asked that question? Yeah, I mean the the nice thing about real estate is like if you pick the right asset that's actually a good deal, under market rents, you know, cash flowing today, you can have a monkey running this thing and, and it can kind of go, right? So your biggest risk in this whole thing is kind of is the operator an honest person, right? And do they have some business sense? How do you mitigate that, right? Well. Try not to be the first sucker who goes into someone's deal, right? I mean, <laughs> um, how do you, you know, how, tactically, how do you do that? Well, you have to build up your network of other pure passive investors, right? That have actually put in 50 Gs with somebody and seen results. Uh, likely, you don't have those people in your network. I never had it when I first started. So I had to be that sucker who put in some money with some people, right? But yeah. now I know who to work with. And I'm not going to share with you because you're not helping me out, right? And this is how it works. It, I've never seen it happen where you meet somebody, a passive investor, and you just go, oh, let, me, let me give you my, my spreadsheet of everybody I've worked with, how much I've got, and how much I've got every quarter. It doesn't work like this. You have to build organic, true relationships in this world. It's hard work, hard work, and, and you know, people put capital at risk to get that list. You're not gonna get it that easily. If you're some of those people who are really bad at building relationships, well, maybe go buy a rental property on your own and just chug away at that, right? It's going to be a long and hard race out there, but it's a it's different. Different skills is what you need to be this passive investor. Yeah, being a landlord is definitely not for everybody. You know, there's there's a lot of uh, you know a lot of moving pieces. Lane, what do you think about the fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage? you know, and how that would affect uh, some of your apartment multifamily investments and then, you know, mobile home park investments. Oh my, this is a very politically loaded question, huh? I don't know, man. I don't think about it too much, right? Like, isn't it, To I don't follow politics very much, but isn't it like whatever, whatever, like the bottom, whatever they get paid is what they can pay. So landlords or businesses will just charge more. I mean, it's just like, it's just a constant, like a dog chasing its tail type of thing. I mean, it, I, again, it comes down to like heads I win, tails I win. If they get paid more, then you can charge more rent. Yeah. I mean, in, in theory, I think that's, uh, you know, a benefit to being invested in assets, real assets versus, you know, other mediums of, of investment. But uh, and, yeah, and I think of- that's, that's where like it really helps to be investing with a more nimble operator, right? Because as things will always be changing, but being a nimble operator, you can change a little bit quicker, right? And as opposed to more of an institutional operator who has to get so many checks and balances or they're working off three-year plans, five-year plans, 10-year plans. Whereas a more nimble operators, they're not tied to shareholders. They have fiduciary responsibility to know and know when things are changing and can kind of make a business plan in 30, 60 days. Yeah, no, that's a that's a, a good point. So, Lane, everybody, every, another question that investors always ask me, and you may you may be curious as well, is what happens when the tornado comes through and rips apart a mobile home park? Because that's that's what a lot of the LPs seem to think is the worst case scenario in a mobile home park. Have you have you heard of that question from any of your investments? Yeah, I mean, actually, had it just that happened to my single family home. The other day. Oh my goodness! Seriously, uh, in Bir- in Birmingham, uh, but 
I mean, that one I'm kind of screwed, right? Because the res- when you're a single family home landlord, your your insurance sucks, right? You have like this dinky like residential, like retail type of policy, right? But when you're in a mobile home park as a land or as a as a passive investor or apartment deal, you got like a much more beefier commercial policy. And luckily, it's your operator who's making the calls. I mean, we've had trees fall on our apartments, take down twelve units. Um, we were That's out a big for tree. like, yeah, well, we were out man. for like five, um, five months, but we Gee. had like rent coverage. So it doesn't matter. Um, we had buildings catch on fire. I mean, if, if your operator sophisticated, oftentimes it's kind of like a, like a penalty flag on a, you know, in a football, right? It's like, Quarterback, when he sees that flag, right, what does he do, right? He takes a chuck down the field because it's kind of like a free a free down. And it's kind of like a tornado. Tornado coming in is actually a, a good one to happen because, you know, it, it gets fixed and possibly you can get a brand new roof in the process. Um, the hurricanes, I think, are a little bit harder, right? Because the hurricanes and floods, it takes out your city services. So it's going to take a while for you to get back online. So you better have your cap cash reserves and more importantly, working capital to to hold out that time when the insurance company gets your payment back out to be able to pay for like the repairs, the reimbursements. Uh, but I mean, that's why you're kind of riding in Noah's Ark as opposed to in your little robot by yourself. I mean, better better insurance coverages and somebody works your your claim. And every time we get a insurance claim more than like, I would say, hundred grand we get like a third party uh, claims adjuster to, to fight it on our behalf and i mean they they typically get like two or three times what the insurance company's first offer is wow that's a great tip and that's for claims over a hundred thousand yeah i mean I, i'm just thinking anything less i mean it's always been less than 30 40 grand like the last texas freeze we had i mean just you're gonna have some busted pipes it's just ten to twenty thousand dollars in a hundred two hundred unit apartment, but um, I mean it's either going to be smaller than that or big, much bigger. And those bigger claims, like an apartment getting on fire or a tornado, in your case, I would say get that claims adjuster on board. If you're not, especially if you're not getting what you're wanting. Totally, yeah. I would say with the the tornado event, you know, we do carry loss of rent insurance, like you said, and you know, on single family rentals. That's just not a, like you said, it's more of a retail policy. It's not a big commercial policy. So you don't get some of those add-ins. Lane, would you mind telling us a little bit about your podcast and, and Simple Passive cash flow? Yeah, so initially it started um, back in 2016 as a way to kind of teach um, folks how to get remote single-family home renters. Uh, but eventually as I became more of an accredited investor myself, investing in these syndicated deals, um, obviously, the topics have changed, right? Um, it's more get rid of your annoying single-family home rentals, become a more accredited, sophisticated investor, build networks, and then really open up this world of passive activity losses, real estate professional status, taxes, um, and then get into like the legal world, and then infinite creating infinite banking policies and whole life insurance. You know, a lot of these secrets of the wealthy that are very simple, but you know, who the heck talks about this stuff, right? Certainly my parents never doesn't know anything about it. And the guy at work doesn't know anything about it. 
in the, the cubicle dwellers next, nearby. Um, but yeah, you know, that's kind of like, it is very simple, right, for high net worth investors, but it's very counterintuitive to what is said out there in mainstream financial advice. Yeah, I uh, I remember a few years ago when we we met up for dinner when you were in Orlando here, and you were still working as an engineer. I think it was, I think it was the the most expensive pothole in the history of 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 Hawaii in the in the airport. You oh, remember that? It was <laughs> yeah, like a, uh, my, how many millions of dollars was that pothole? I don't know if that damn thing ever got fixed, but yeah, <laughs> people have ever been to Maui. I was working for the airports as the engineer. And that was one of my projects. The one runway, there was like a big pothole or divot, but it was like, I don't know how much it was to fix that damn thing. Like it was like at least 5 million to maybe $20 million scope. Yeah. That's what, we, that's what I think I, you said. I was, I was in the beginning of that. We were in some of the study mode, you know, where yeah. government workers, they just get a bunch of studies to delay the project. and. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you're spending government money wisely, right? You know, yeah, taxpayer dollars. <laughs> yeah, oh, we don't want to wait. We don't want to like waste money, so we got to study the heck out of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jeez, unbelievable. But you know, really happy for you. Uh, married now, right? En- engaged. Have a have a baby on the way. Yeah, yeah. So, so has your um, investing well, changed since these these new life events have have come about? Not really. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's been working. So my net worth has been growing. I, like I said, maybe kind of get a little bit more aggressive now because I can, right? Open it up. That's great. So Lane, what is like your one last tip? If, if an LP investor has listened all the way to the end of this podcast, what is your one final tip that you would tell them that would be like, the, the best takeaway they could get? Uh, only listen to people who are financially free. There's a whole bunch of people out there that don't have a clue. Um, if you don't have people like that, you need to find people like that. Because, I mean, I owned rentals from 2009 to 2015, doing it all by myself. I thought I was hot stuff. I, I listened to a bunch of podcasts. I'm a smart guy. I, I know spreadsheets. I'm a freaking engineer. But until I got around other accredited investors, um, you know, I didn't, didn't really go anywhere. That's a great, that's a great tip. And Lane, how can listeners get a hold of you if they would like to do so? Um, they can check out my website, simplepassivecashflow.com. Check out the Simple Passive Cashflow podcast. And then uh, email address is lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. Lane, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your wisdom with us. Um, make sure to check out Lane's podcast. Uh, That's it for today, folks. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over 100 five-star reviews by the end of 2021, and it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time, for making my day with your five-star review of the show.